Welcome to Foam Talks. I am Valeria Posada, Assistant Curator of Public Practice. It is my pleasure to introduce you to a special edition connected to Pride Amsterdam 2022. This episode will focus on communitarian archives in Eastern Europe and their power to uncover queer life and culture. The talk welcomes artist Anton Shebetko. His series, To Know Us Better, is currently exhibited at Foam. Anton will be in dialogue with Karol Radziwetski, artist, writer, and founder of the Queer Archives Institute in Poland. Curator Public Program Jim van Geel will be the moderator of the session. Jim, Karol, Anton, take it away. So I just got very brief introductions on you, um, and I would like to ask you both to further introduce yourselves and your practices a bit more. So maybe Anton, you want to start? My name is Anton Shabetko, and I recently graduated from uh, Heritage Ritual Academy in Amsterdam. And uh, for a few years already, I'm working with the topics of pure history of uh, Ukraine and um, problems which surrounding uh, history and actually visibility of this history and, uh, and how it's actually connected in the visibility in the present day in Ukraine. And you, Karol? I'm a visual artist. I study painting, but I, since 2005, I'm running a magazine, as you mentioned, called Dick Magazine. And that was a starting point for my interest in archives and research in Central Eastern Europe, the stories related to the past. So this Queer Archive Institute project that I create, it's an umbrella for different activities that are part of this research, uh, yeah, focusing on the region and the queer history and past. Hmm. And um, to perhaps um, ground a bit more the context of your work, could you give us a short insight on how the LGBTQ movement has developed in the last decades or so in your country of origins and also how this has affected you and your work? I'm from Ukraine and I would say that in the recent few years, basically when I moved to the Netherlands and when I was coming back to Ukraine, I mentioned big improvements in actually in the representation of uh, community and the visibility of the community in general. Uh, before that, uh, representation of com- community in the public space was limited. It wasn't uh, big enough. And for example, there were no uh, actual pride events in Ukraine. And uh, since 2016, we have like quite a major and big events uh, with, uh, I think the last time there was like around 8,000 uh, people, which is organized uh, in Kiev, uh, we call it a march of equality, uh, not pride. And also they started organizing such events in the different cities. A lot of uh, safe spaces have uh, been opened. Uh, so, uh, and I think what was actually very important is that uh, communities started having support from the uh, public persons in Ukraine. And now I'm talking about, uh, I don't know, musicians, uh, journalists, um, actors, uh, also sometimes even politics, which I would say for Ukraine is quite big progress. I can mention that uh, still every year, uh, I think almost every year, um, some de- um, some deputies, like people from uh, in government, they're trying to uh, pass some kind of a law on uh, ban of uh, LGBT propaganda or something like this. But uh, and I think the first attempt was actually right after Russia had this law. 
but they didn't manage to pass it because it didn't it never actually landed in the parliament. So I think this is also actually quite um, important thing because at the same time um, there is a law waiting for for voting uh, about um, hate crimes, which is still not um, banned in Ukraine. I mean there is no um, there is no punishment for that. So I think. Uh, but even the idea that the law was registered and waiting for voting is already a big progress because I would say that 10 years ago it would be difficult to imagine something like this in Ukraine. Hmm. And what do you think has led to this um, relatively recent switch within the discourse that, that from 2016 there is this march of equality? And yeah, I think, like I, yeah, I think the, the main reason is basically the uh, revolution in 2014 and uh, a revolution of uh, dignity. And the thing is that uh, when you declare uh, openly that you are moving towards Europe and not to Russia, so you have to prove it somehow with your actual deeds. And all of these laws and movements are actually something which is being possible only because of that, I would say. Like, uh, let's say when you go into a um, pride event, like uh, in Kiev, I think the first one when it was 2000, 16, if I'm totally correct, uh, there were like a small amount of uh, participants, but a few thousand of policemen who were protecting people um, who go into to, to, to the march of quality because, and I mean, personally, uh, I don't like police, but you know, but in that particular case, they're your allies because they maybe even don't like you, but they have to protect you. So there is a certain loss and they have to protect you. And they doing it actually very uh, successfully in majority of cases, I would even say, Ex exactly on that event. I, I couldn't say that it actually applied to uh, police in general, because it still can be very difficult to register a hate crime uh, because of the actual uh, lack of um, uh, law base. So I think... Uh, but in general, there was like certain movements and improvements, which uh, for me was difficult not to mention because, you know, like I work for quite a lot of uh, with invisibility. So I was work, working a lot with a, with a topic that people cannot be actually represented even visually in uh, properly, you know, because they were hiding. And it was some kind of like uh, thing which was very you know, reappearing, like you're wiping certain topics from the history and it's like, sounds like those people never existed in the history. Like you're talking about some people who, I would use the term queer or non-heteronormative uh, in the history. And, you know, his, historians trying to avoid these topics and not to talk about. So this is obviously prevents uh, society even from understanding the, that, that even, I don't know, queer people were always in the history. Of Ukraine, uh, yeah. And uh, you, Karol, has this been in Poland? Yeah, it was a bit similar like in Ukraine, but a bit earlier. So it started in the nineties, the first uh, marches and activist movements. But uh, I was born in Białystok. It's northeast part of Poland. It's not a huge city, but it's not that small. But still, I remember quite clear. When I was growing up there, there was this constant uh, feeling of fear, but also the feeling of not fit into the society. Because 
I could refer for, to what Anton just said, that uh, the main idea for people in Poland was that uh, this, I mean, queerness, gayness, whatever we call it, coming from the West, it's not ours. So it's, there was never gays and lesbians in Poland. And then later when it changed a bit, I remember I heard in my town, yes, maybe it's now in Poland because it came from the West when we joined the European Union, but not in Gawistok. So it's funny to see. And every time I'm traveling like to Bulgaria, Romania, different countries, they, they always say the same story, that they had to prove their existence in the past. And that's why I also started many of my projects as a political activist by researching history and bringing uh, these stories to the... Um, to the project that I'm working on. And 2005, I created the exhibition called Facts, and it was considered the first openly gay exhibition in the history of the country. So it was not that long time ago when we think about this first kind of event. But also, it was very um, significant that there were some queer artists in the past, but they never wanted to be out. So you can uh, see some traces in, in the practice in art, but they never called themselves openly. So this my show was kind of changing that. And I'm mentioning that because um, after that, many of my projects, uh, like especially video and photographic projects, were very explicit. I was really obsessed with my own gay identity, how to express that and how to uh, challenge um, the society. And slowly it was evolving. So the same was with the community, LGBT community porn, because at the beginning the activists were really focusing on the rights and how to be present in the only positive way, nice young gays in the TV if they have the opportunity to show up. And then slowly it evolved into more queer movement, I would say, or that more diverse uh, community. The, the 2005, when I made this show, was also very important significant because this party that is ruling our country now very conservative uh, government super homophobic was already in power in 2005 so a few things in the response to that came out the the first gay novels my show and also one of the biggest prides uh, that was forbidden and uh, and this government get to the power a few years ago again and they use openly homophobic uh, propaganda to use the politics so the whole community and scene become really diverse uh, as i mentioned it's more queer and it's much more visible because of this repression but in the same time we are challenged with the really open homophobic statements from the politics from the parliament from the president of the country so it's a really interesting moment also for me because i feel i don't have to be nice and trying to be fit to this LGBT image any anymore. I could be more queer and more specific and also challenging the activists in the movement because of the diversity that come out. Almost every city in Poland have their own march now because of this uh, rep repression that we're experiencing. But in the same time, the whole new generation of non-binary, transgender teenagers are creating their own space, their own uh, expression. And that's changed completely the um, atmosphere, vision, and the, the way people think about the queer community in Poland. Hmm. I think already we, we, we've used these terms such as queer and gay and LGBT and sort of intermix between them. And I thought maybe it's good to highlight um, or establish the differences within these terms. 
And uh, Carol, I actually wanted to ask you to do so by uh, referring to a statement that I found in a text that you wrote for um, Internationale, in which you wrote, and here I quote, I concluded that there was a serious need to prove that queer culture existed in Poland already during the socialist era, that we were queer before gay. Could you expand a bit, uh, a bit on this statement? What do you mean here? Yeah, this quote, queer before gay, is <clears throat> coming from Douglas Cream, the prominent critic and uh, writer-curator who passed away a few years ago. He used this term regarding uh, United States, but I thought it's really useful to think about uh, Poland, but also Central Eastern Europe, especially about the 80s, the moment when the just before the communists fall down, before this new capitalistic way of thinking on different levels, also with this pink capitalism came to the country, the moment when the first uh, LGBT zines, or rather gay zines, are appearing, but they not using word gay that much. They are actually discussing in the 80s uh, what terms they should use because they have a, they, they, they local they, their local vocabulary. So it's interesting that they are uh, trying to decide if to use word gay, if you would if to if to use it literally and pronounce in an English way or more Polish way. And uh, they also not having the drag queen shows or nobody heard and about the RuPaul yet, but uh, they are uh, cross-dressing and their interest is more in the Paris cabarets and like old school kind of queer references that we know from the old times, like 50s, 60s, they are introducing in the 80s. And it's also the beginning of HIV and AIDS crisis. So all mixed together, giving you the atmosphere of creating something for the very first time, but not defined by the typical... American narration that you have the Stonewall riots and then the gay liberation movement is growing and fighting for the particular political rights. Also, it's interesting in the terms of Poland that we are one of the first countries in the uh, in the world that decriminalized homosexual acts in 1932 and never criminalized them again, even during the communist times. So even if the society was very homophobic, mostly because of the Catholic Church, there were no real... Um, punishment or law. So many queer traces were not a proof of crimes like in other countries like Belarus, Ukraine or, or, or countries in the region. And that's giving also a different perspective on how this queer identity was uh, evolving before it was shaped and named in the 90s as uh, we know from the uh, United States. Uh, you followed that earlier statement up with um, the following. So the statement was, um, consequently, my goal has been to, to recover this aspect of the past as part of Poland's cultural history in general, not just as an element of queer history. There is a thing which uh, Karel mentioned that uh, there were some artists to whom it was possible to refer as, uh, you know, like gay or queer in the past, but they didn't want to have it uh, like openly or talk about it. Something what I mentioned from when I was trying to research uh, culture from perspective of like exactly perspective of art, uh, and when I was talking to different Ukrainian uh, art historians or critics, they couldn't name basically anyone, and that was something which is uh, I found very um, interesting in a way because there was no actually there was no 
until certain moment in the in the history like in Karel it was like 2005 right when uh yeah w- when you did an exhibition i think in ukraine the, the first artist who manifested his uh homosexuality in his art was anatoly bilov and that was actually first person and i remember i talked to Karel once and he he mentioned that when he was talking talking to tolik uh before that tolik didn't know anyone gay and he was thinking that they just he's his only person in the world in 2000s already and this is obviously something you know there is like giant blast of history of a culture which was not discovered which was not looked from a certain perspective and i think uh right now is for ukraine i think now it's a perfect moment to actually do this to try to to find traces especially which which goes to to a culture i think in your work you also sort of highlight the community right now or, or what it's looked like a few years ago or in certain intervals. Um, I was wondering if you place yourself then within a certain lineage of artists or are there are there certain people that you really admire um, from a local I, perspective, like looking for ancestry in a way? I mean, uh, so th- that's the thing. We, if, I would, if I would try to answer this question, the only person in my head would be actually Anatoly Belov. Because, uh, uh, like nowadays, there is a giant uh, amount of queer artists, people who actually been very openly queer, and uh, not it's not related anyhow to actually uh, sexuality. It's actually about different, I would say, uh, perspective of uh, queerness. And but it it managed it it could happen only after. Uh, after this, you know, like revolution happened, when we actually tried to break a certain mental narrative that uh, you cannot be queer or gay in uh, Ukraine and you never had them before. Like, there was like some hist- historical uh, um, personalities, like uh, like Lesia Ukrainka, for example. She's like, she was a feminist. She was a very prominent Ukrainian writer and poetess. She's actually on our money, on our national currency. And um, she supposedly had a, a romantic relationship with another writer, Olga Kobylanska. And probably only platonical, but they have like these uh, writings to each other, like letters, and they're very... Uh, passionate and they found this specific language to talk to each other about uh, about uh, themselves to, to each other to 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 call with uh, cute names and um, this aspect is very controversial in Ukraine till the present day you kind of cannot talk about these people from the perspective of them being possibly non-heteronormative because it sounds like some kind of a um, offense to, to, to the memory. And for the people who, who are trying to do this, they, they face in a lot of, uh, uh, not, not oppression, but, you know, like um, con- controversy because of that. Like, uh, I remember there was a Ukrainian artist, uh, David Chichkan, and he did the exhibition about uh, Lesya Ukrainka. I mean, he, he did a bigger exhibition, but there is part about Lesya Ukrainka as a feminist. And that exhibition had to be closed because there was a lot of, you know, um, controversy around it. So it's very difficult till nowadays to talk in Ukraine about some history from that perspective because 
uh, I think of different reasons. One of them is, uh, I would say, uh, like common cultural field with Russia, which was lasted for a very long time, you know, and he, which prevented us from talking about it. So, uh, yeah. I'm so, I always have the feeling that I'm not answering the question. <laughs> it's a perfect answer. Um, so, Carol, I wanted to ask you, uh, how did your search for historical material develop for the Queer uh, Archives Institute? Um, to which people or communities or organizations, if they were present, uh, did you turn to and, and how did you engage them in your search? Yeah, my, my research started somehow and the whole practice from Dick Magazine, the magazine that I started and found in 2005, because the base for that was the oral history and interviews. This is my main tool until now. I still feel that it's the best um, way to get the um, information from the past to talk with the older representatives of the community. And this is the strategy that it's very simple, but it's many times avoided by the academics. While they are working on the printed materials, what they could find in the old newspapers, books, their perspective is very specific. Most of the early uh, research related to the queer past, it's coming from the police files about criminal acts, about the crimes and so on. So to avoid that and to kind of build contrast archive, I started to record a lot of interviews and for that I started to travel a lot. I've been, I think, in almost every single Central Eastern European country and uh, magazine become a base to curate, to print those uh, interviews, those materials uh, together, almost like in a book. Uh, later, this stories were evolving and in, become part of my films and my artistic practice, installations and what come out as a Queer Archive Institute. But it's also interesting to refer what Anton was just saying, because um, my first trip uh, with that kind of research beside Poland was actually in Kyiv in Ukraine in 2006. And when I met Tolik, uh, who is similar age as I am, uh, it was, again, this feeling of creating the history from the scratch, because uh, what Stolik, for example, is developing now, it's going even farther to the deep history, to the mythology, to fantasize about the queer past. It's also an important element. But uh, this connection between the countries uh, of the region also was very important from the beginning for me, to build the network, actually, to not, you know, appropriate in a colonial way that I'm going somewhere, just taking archives and escaping by train or whatever, but rather to call this Queer Archives Institute as a performative institutions, institution that it's building a network between academics, artists and researchers in different countries. So I'm reaching out different people. Sometimes those friendships, like with Tolik, are coming for many years. And uh, we, each of us, working on some part of the stories and then when they are put together in the shows, exhibitions, or some publications, they are growing. In, in Poland, it was easier for me because of the language. I could be more precise and deeper understanding what people are, were bringing to me. Also, they were, were feeling more safe with talking directly with me. So I have a lot of recordings. But uh, also, it was very typical that at the beginning, I was founding only things related to the cis gay men and that's changed in a process uh, 
through the years. Now I, for the purpose, deciding to record voices of transgender community because there is a big lack of their presence in the past. So this is very characteristic for practice of Queer Archive Institute and what I'm trying to uh, research and uh, giving visibility and platform now. And you, you spoke about uh, building a network, right? Did you did you find in your in your research, uh, especially in your research on uh, on the queer community before um, the fall of the, the iron walls, so to say, um, that that there was a sense of community. Obviously, people have always been there, but but was there really a community sense also, maybe in a coded way, or was it really just individuals who who felt as such? The, the history, queer history is usually based on the individuals. That's why uh, we learn only about some names. And usually, especially in Central Eastern Europe, this individual individuals, if they are not famous writers from the past, that we have some traces that they were queer, maybe. The other option is that they are early zine founders or organization founders. And that's how... I also learned about Ryszard Kiesiel, one of the early activists uh, from Poland, from Gdańsk, uh, from the 80s, who was not only the early activist, but also founder of the one of the first gay zines in the region. And what I learned from his archive and his uh, stories, it's that he was a leader of the community and network because he was traveling a lot, a bit what I'm doing now, but during the communist time, it was obviously different. But he, his position was unique and his foundings become a heart of my archive now also because he was traveling by train to uh, many countries, Bulgaria, Romania, uh, to Prague, to Budapest. There was a lot of exchange, but it was all based on the cruising and um, sexual adventures. So it was very specific way of networking, I would say. But later, in the beginning of the 90s, he became um, part of the... Ilga organization, one other Polish guy with the American one who based in Vienna, they started also a network and, and uh, conferences. So from the beginning of the 90s, there was like a real network of the activists who were building their early organizations in their own countries. Yeah, okay, I can actually add. So it was uh, similar in, um, in Ukraine because basically... Uh, the all research you can do would be considering uh, people going to Pleska, which was uh, named for all cruising place and, you know, meeting in the toilets and just finding some kind of phone numbers. So it wasn't really, con- it was only connected to, to sex because, I mean, even sex was prohibited. But uh, let's say any other activity as, uh, as, you know, like movement or, you know, like something which would be um, connecting people was basically impossible and the early um, 90s was the time when the first organization in Ukraine also started to appear in and uh, there were quite a lot I would say of them and then um, in your work how, how do you relate to these things such as community or the individual uh, if we look at your work some series are, are quite individual based or, or also very much based around anonymity um, Whereas there's also this series with uh, people in a club, which a club by definition is so community-based, right? In the club? Um, the, the reference to Rineke Dijkstra, this film? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, but that's, uh, I wouldn't, 
yeah, that's that's uh, another work, but I would also wouldn't uh, connect it really to to topic of queerness per se because uh, it was just a work done for during the festival recently, and it was just a video portrait, silent video portraits of uh, people who go into to one uh, like to the one of the biggest Ukrainian electronic music festivals. So in that in that movie, there are children, there are also old people. So I think um, wouldn't really connected it to 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 the whole practice. It was a bit of uh, this experiment for me. I think. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mistaken. I thought. Um, no, no. I mean, uh, obviously, obviously, some of them are queer, some are not. But this is, I would just say, just the portraits of uh, uh, Ukrainians. You know, so I wouldn't put it frame it as. Uh, um, queer people um but uh yeah for me i think when i just started for me it was was really important it was actually i think with a lot of artists you you drawing from your personal thing you know something from your own experience and then uh, you're just trying to uh find a bigger scale at least what i was trying to do from the from the very beginning so for me what was interesting that i was see, see some kind of a problem or something within me, something what I was, you know, like eating me from the inside. And then I was trying to find the, is there any kind of a relation from this to, to a bigger specter to, to find the bigger, bigger picture. And that's how, for example, I started with my, I think one of the first project common people, which was basically a portrait of anonymous portraits of closeted gay men, because in the very beginning, the, the project even started with my portrait and I included it in the, some editions of the, Mm, of the project so for me it was just you know like trying to find and trying to combine the people to to show it on a bigger scale you know like to find this uh even when you don't see the community there is a, some kind of a communal thing something you can you know some kind of a connection you can find between the people and uh and this and the traces of oppression they experience and why they actually experience it uh yeah that and I think it was actually um, I continued in the majority of the projects uh, I did. You know, like uh, I don't know a project about simis. You know, I was going to simis a couple of times, and for me it was very this kind of like a weird uh, fairy tale place, which doesn't really uh, shouldn't exist because you know it was uh, uh, basically underground queer resort in the in in Crimea, and I really. And then I was working with found archive and uh, what really struck me, there was one image of a guy with the angel wings. And I just remember that I, when I was on that beach, I just remember that guy very well because it was very surreal, you know, like think you, you, you see, you know, all of this um, naked men, uh, different ages, because I would say the Simis was majority popular in the beginning um, with the people who started going there right after a Soviet Union, you know, like uh, fall of the Soviet Union. And then you see this uh, young guy with the angel wings. And then, you know, it's, it's very kind of surreal picture you, you see. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I think like the pictures from Plesko is basically, it's also about community, but the absence of the community and what actually happened to it. Because I could say that, uh, when I was trying to find someone uh, for publication to do interview someone from who used, who lived in the Soviet Union and who, who can tell me a lot about it, uh, it was big, big, biggest struggle for me because uh, I 
talk to a few activists who I know personally and from, you know, like old organization. They were like, yeah, it's kind of impossible to find someone because they're too afraid to even talk. You know, even they're, I don't know, 70 years old, you wouldn't find them. So in the end, I found two people who were, who were basically the same age and they were like 60 now. And uh, it's in the publication. But what kind of really strikes me that differences in their views. So one person had uh, so much freedom in the Soviet Union in this closedness of the community or how, I don't know how to call it properly, but in what he had, that he was really dissatisfied with the uh, pride, pride events in Ukraine, you know, like, and uh, people are demanding something and how actually queer community looks like now. For him, it was very dissatisfying. And on the other hand, there was a guy who, a man, who actually began one of the first um, organizations, um, LGBT um, rights organization in Ukraine. But he didn't have anything in the Soviet Union. So it was very interesting in the part of the view. Other part of the one community, well, probably, right? But they also have like totally opposite views on the things. And for me, what is really important when I'm trying to investigate the, uh, I don't know, community or, or the history is to actually be uh, able to show different points of view and different histories because in the same line of time, you can have a totally different stories and views. And I think this is actually very, uh, uh, let's say, uh, queer perspective actually on the history itself, you know, because it's not linear in a way. It's not like, the only way of how you can read it. And I think this uh, flexibility of it and flamboyance and some like really giving up ability to listen to different stories is something very important and for me and uh, in the projects I'm working on. I was wondering what, what role does imagination and creativity play then in your practice when uh, doing all this research and then putting this in photographs or, or looking at the world through lens um i think i think for me that actually uh like oral history is very important as for, as for carol this is basically on which i'm basing all of my works and but i also uh have like a journalist background and i understand that uh quite often this the story can be told better through the lenses you know like through through the through the through visuals and it's important sometimes also when you work with uh invisible community uh, to prove somehow with the photography, because it's anyways even uh, it's medium with a pure documentary nature. It's more undeniable as th than other mediums. So for me, it was always important to you know like to to find the problem, to 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 collect the information, and then trying to transform it to visualize it in different ways, and also. Um, trying not to make it flat but like trying to find different layers in it so it can talk not to just for example queer community but also to uh, mm, wide audience let's say uh, heteronormative conservative audience of ukraine so i understand that uh, of course on one hand you can easily do activist project which uh, will will not really uh, engage people with different views but for me, it's important to, to, to talk about struggles and the problems and and actually to tell the stories which which can understand different people. I think what you just said um, 
about visualizing unseen communities. Uh, brings me up to a question I really wanted to ask you um, both, actually, but maybe Carol, you want to answer first is um, basically this thing about what has been called the trap of representation, um, which is something that was experienced by and written uh, about by transmedia personalities, such as activist Monroe Bergdorf or actress and activist Laverne Cox. Um, and this is something sort of since the mid 2010s uh, in which we entered a period with increased visibility for trans people. And something that Time Magazine has called the transgender tipping point. And basically what they um, have stated is that, that this visibility that they've been given, which is great and can normalize certain things or communities or, or identities, uh, also, and, and can have an emancipatory effect. Uh, also, that this same visibility also brings forth a regressive and conservative movement and reactions, and one that can be quite often uh, violent even. How do you situate your practice within this, this trap of representation? Yeah, it's a very good question, a very difficult one, because it's also, I was, I become aware of that during the, the years of working on that because at the beginning i was so excited that i could tell any history bring any figures from the past that i was not even thinking about the issue of representation then slowly it was coming and also when i mentioned that before but the problem with what you will find in the history in the archives which is mostly oriented on the cis gay people like documentation from the beach from cruising spots, from the magazines, the presence of the male body. It's so overwhelming somehow when you will do the show only about this Eastern European archives that I had to reconsider how to construct the shows and how to make a proportions even with this representation of community. And then came the second thought, how uh, getting to point to, to your question, like how even if you build this representation, how it's going to work. So. I'm trying to work on different layers, actually. When I'm proposing interviews, I'm selecting the people who are willing to tell their stories and they kind of control what they present. My recent project was uh, dedicated to Eva Hauszka. She was the leader of Solidarity Movement in Poland, part of the opposition. And only because she did the transition, full transition, and uh, in 2000, she started to be erased from our history. So her story, was really like a few hours of recordings and she was prepared. It was not even, you don't even need the questions. We just set up the camera and it was like one break and almost six hours, more than five hours, whole life talking. She said, literally, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I don't know how long I'm going to live. This is my statement. She just used the opportunity to record this for the camera. So, and I also trying to make people comfortable by uh, inviting, uh, I don't know, this this particular interview was uh, filmed by the transgender camera operators. So to build the whole setup that these people, the whole crew, everybody feel that they doing what they want. And then the frame of Queer Archives Institute is helping me to be more transparent if it's possible, even if I'm editing parts of these interviews for the shows, still, what I wanted to say that I'm giving the voice for those who feel comfortable with that. And the others probably have to remain in the shadow, but it could be their decision. Or with the archive, it's also that uh, 
the most important part, the same with the oral histories that you recorded. And then the decision if it will be exposed and when and how, it's the other kind of, uh, the other level. So uh, I'm not sure if I'm clear, but this is kind of a strategy for me that uh, I'm recording uh, as much as I can with the best possible atmosphere, but then uh, the way you present it is actually the moment when you are dealing with the issue of uh, representation, and that's uh, a different story. Also, referring to what Anton said about photography, it's, uh, it's an interesting aspect because the conservatives usually when we talk, for example, about the queers in 19th century, they, they need the proof. Oh, you say she was lesbian or non-heteronormative person. Give me a color photographs of, the, of penetration, prove it. And then when you have more contemporary people and you literally give them this photograph, they are offended and they don't believe and they said it's fake and it's manipulated and so on. So... For, for my practice, it was interesting that after many years of using so-called neutral historical documentary medias, I get back to the painting and I said, okay, I will make a visual statement with painting when I'm really more focusing on the image to create a vision, particular portrait, uh, instead of proving constantly because I don't, I, I, I get to the point that I don't want it to play this game that I have to prove, I have to respond for any critique or questions the conservatives or church have. So for me, it's also part of the queer strategy to be free to kind of develop your own way of telling these stories. Even if they are fantasies or mixing the truth and fantasy, it's our own way. And that's why it's also important that these stories are told from the queer uh, perspective, not just about by someone who decides that, oh, it's interesting. Hmm. And, and Anton, how do you um, situate yourself within this thing of representation? Uh, well, I can say that uh, I definitely, when I started just working, I was more uh, concentrating on the uh, homosexual aspect of, uh, and this is, was coming from me. But at some point, I also understood that it's not correct and it's not right. And I should really uh, think about how to give representation to all uh, people, not to all, but like to, to different people from the community and why it's important. And for example, it was like when I started working on the series about uh, sold, queer soldiers, for me, it was really important to include not only men, because for me, what was I was trying to break through is from this, uh, that from the ideal um, vision of a soldier, how it can look like or what it should be. And for me, it was very important to include there women, uh, trans, trans people. And uh, I didn't I didn't find at that time, no, someone non-binary, but probably if I would have opportunity to do it now, I would be very happy to do this. And uh, that representation, I think, was very important to, to, to show different people. And actually, even with... The project which will be in which is on the view in the phone is for me it was very important to represent uh all possible uh people to to tell their story because i also understand that the stories would be very different story of uh let's say uh this gay man 40 years old will be different from a story of a non-binary 18 year old person and but they they both telling the story is something they meant something they saw and experienced and for me it's very important 
to actually shape that not like it's not like uh, I'm trying to shape the community, but you know I think that the difference actually is something which is make a community in a way. Yeah, I think it's also this thing of right, like you you create a, a document in a way, something that once upon like in the future will be in an archive. So so then it becomes a question of responsibility almost. Yeah, I understand that it's like the moment I'm putting it to the world, it's my responsibility, you know, not to be biased, not to concentrate on one aspect or concentrate on myself. So for me, I'm just feeling that the need to mediate these stories to being able to, to talk about them and about representation. Like I think with, with the project in form, what happened, uh, I actually led the people to, so they all were in the control of the stories. Uh, they told me, I just, you know, like uh, transfer it to a text and then I sent text to them. And I said like, Hey, if you feel something uncomfortable, you can just cut it off or you can add something. So for me, it's also important that they are writing the story. And this is actually what happened with the photography uh, for the project itself, I was choosing, I was sending them certain selection, kind of like more or less white and saying, saying like, Hey, choose the ones you like, and I can choose from that. But for me, it was very important that they are actually, uh, that they are, uh, in charge, not only of the story, but also of a visual representation they would have, because I cannot, because this is how it usually happens when you know, like you're portraying people as a photographer, you are the one who are choosing how they will look like in a way. You kind of, you kind of showing them picture and saying like, hey, do you like this one? And they're like, maybe if they don't even like, they usually feel kind of press, pressured in certain way that they maybe should like it or not. So I had the responsibility. I had a feeling that I have a responsibility to give them the way how they can be represented visually because... And that's why actually where it came the differences, visual differences of uh, of the series, because I talked to some editors and they said to me like, hey, why didn't you choose like images in one style? Because like you shouldn't do like you shouldn't like choose, you know, like flash and the natural daylight and then like to have film because it doesn't make sense for the um, visual uh, cohesiveness of the story. But for me, it's not about that visual uh Thing of the story, but it's for me. It's actually about possibility of telling the story and letting people to represent themselves, and I can just mediate what they are telling. So I think we can talk about all these things for for much longer, but we have to stop it also at some point. Um, I I wanted to ask you one uh, question in closing to you both, which is a bit of a jump from what we earlier discussed, but I wanted to talk to you about myths and myth making. Uh, for instance, here in the Netherlands. There's a very misconception or myth uh, about the supposed prosecution of gay men during the Second World War, um, something which is factually untrue. Dutch men were not prosecuted and sent to concentration camps for being gay. However, in the 70s, this narrative was sort of invented to claim a certain gay victimhood, which was used in the emancipatory movement uh, with great success. And the funny or actually more so sad thing is that actually the, the peak in, in uh, the surveilling of gay men and the prosecution of gay men within the Netherlands was in the 50s after the war. And I want to ask you both, what is the biggest misconception that you found there to be in Western thinking about queer history in your respective regions? Or maybe more importantly, uh, what are the biggest myths or misconceptions about queer history in Ukraine and Poland, respectively, within the regions? I mean, I can, <laughs> I can easily go first because... Uh, that was actually the uh, 
biggest misconception which I always I think it's not uh, even misconception it's just uh, absence of education in a way that uh, of, or knowledge which is also kind of understandable in a way because uh, you can you can't know everything you can't uh, be interested in everything so th for me it was basically that people have no idea uh, about anything <laughs> of uh, gay or queer life in Ukraine and it was always seen through the lens of Russia. It was something that I just experienced quite a lot because everyone everyone all the time is surprised when I'm talking about marches of equality. Everyone is like, it's impossible. Or like uh, everyone is thinking that we have uh, you know, anti LGBTQ laws in the in you know, like in the country or, you know, that you are being punished uh for uh in any way that that you are yeah, queer. So uh, I think this is the biggest uh, misconception. But uh, but basically, it just means that everything everything in general is a misconception because lack of the knowledge uh, just doesn't bring you anywhere. Right? It means that you have you need to in a way tell tell the story from the very beginning or try to compose it, and maybe it will be even mythical, uh, like uh, myth in a way. But it's also important. I think I think myth uh, are very important in uh, narrating and uh, shaping the history of the regions which were deprived of such history for such a long period. You know, you cannot avoid them. And Carol? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I I agree with Anton that this, uh, if we think about the West, this misconception of this Russian imperialism, it's it's. It's enormous. Uh, even in my whole research, more than 10 years focused on Central Eastern Europe, never reached Russia, actually, although there were some influences. For people, it's obvious, like probably all of us speak Russian and all the materials are in Russian language. And they are super surprised when I'm saying I don't, I understand a bit, but I don't even speak Russian. So this con concept of uh, also this fixation of the... Um, Soviet symbols coming of all only from Russia. It's 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 really a huge misconception. The thing that I was mentioning before that Poland was one of the first countries in the world to decriminalize the homosexual acts. It's uh, it's not a myth. It's maybe also a misconception when we talk with the people I don't know from Germany or from United Kingdom when they are proudly saying when they decriminalize or when they have the first magazines and it's like look the first mag gay magazine that was published in Prague in uh, Czech was um, already in the 20s 1921 uh, no sorry the 30s and then uh, in Poland the 32 was the criminalization act so it's uh, we were progressive more and also this um myth of Stonewall riots that start everything. It's interesting because when I spoke with Richard Kishel, this activist that his, that archive, his archive is part of Queer Archive Institute now, he was telling me that in the 70s, he remember he was on the beach talking with other guys and they were reading about the Stonewall riots and they were thinking what we would fight for. We don't have the prosecution. We don't uh, have the problems as we have sex and we have fun and uh, and so on. So for them, this concept of the liberation movement was quite weird at that time. Then they have the, we have our own local action called Hyacinth in the 80s. 
85 and 86 and 87, when the police was collecting the data about the gay people at that time and blackmailing them to collaborate with the Secret Service police. So this hyacinth action become alternative myth to the um, Stonewall riots, which is interesting for me uh, in both sides, if it's a productive myth or not, and so on. And when we go deeper in 19th century and the deeper history, it's even more a uh, place for that. My new show will be called Myths, and it's all about the 19th century, and it's a complete fantasy about the uh, composer who was inspired by the folk music, but folk culture, and exoticizing, homoeroticizing homo uh, the, um, the, the, the local village guys, and uh, how, he, how his work and inspirations from uh, Italy at that time and so were incorporated, transform and mythologized from different perspectives when we talk about the national history, national pride, queer history, gay history and um, non-heteronormative aspects of the 19th century and the beginning of 20th century. So it's really complicated but to, to, to end it, I think that uh, queer myths the, po the possibilities that we could create them, it's really a powerful uh, tool. And I'm not afraid to use it. You, you mentioned in your question uh, about um, this, uh, that the gays were sent to a concentration camp. And there was myth, myth uh, uh, built it up, uh, around it. And uh, so do you see it as a positive, actually, aspect of uh, existing of that myth? Did it help in any way? It helped the community, right? No, it helped the community. It, it really became a sort of weapon within an emancipatory movement that they too had been victims within the war, um, which factually was untrue. But at least in a Dutch, like this, now we're getting into historical nitty gritty, but in, in the Netherlands, uh, Dutch gay men were not prosecuted for being gay. Whereas in Germany, obviously, this was very different. It's a horrible effect. Um, but here in the 70s, they claimed a somewhat similar victimhood which then helped also with the, the gay monument, for instance, and setting up all these things, um, which which was really effective here. So yeah, like myths are a powerful tool. Yeah, I, and also want to add to Carl when he started talking that uh, guys in seventies were reading the newspaper and didn't feel the need to fight for anything. I think it was actually very similar situation in Ukraine in two thousands, and that's what actually. I think happened in 2014. People understood that they need to fight for their rights, you know, that they need to have their rights. And the generation appears who, who had the need because before that, people were just happy that, you know, like gays, gay men, not uh, lesbian women, they were happy that there are no Soviet Union and they at least are not getting to prison. So for them, that was enough already. I had the feeling when I was talking to a lot of people because even till nowadays, when you talk to, uh, I don't know, people who are 40, they would say, I wouldn't go to March of Equality. I don't see the need for that. Like, I personally don't have that need. You can go. But so there, there is actually, I think, a certain mentality gap between generations uh, of queer people in Ukraine. I think that's a beautiful conclusion to uh, today's conversation on mythmaking uh, ending there. So thank you both so much for so generously sharing your views and expanding upon your practices. Thank you for listening. 
And do not miss Shebetko's exhibition at FOAM, which will remain open until the 31st of August. For more information on our public programs and events, visit foam.org. Also, do not forget to keep an eye on our social media for the upcoming Foam Talks episode. See you next time!